I invite you to take a Bible, either your own or one from the pew in front of you in those little shelves, and turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, if you would like to follow along, or if you would prefer to just listen carefully, that's okay too. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, if God permits. Father, as we begin this exposition of your inspired word, I pray that you would come with power. I know that there are people in this room right now who have so many different needs that unless you apply the word in manifold ways, it will be too narrowly spoken. But you can take the narrow thrust that I have been able to think about and prepare on and pour myself into and cause it to penetrate in so many different ways. And I pray that you would heal the sick. I pray that you would humble the proud. I pray that you would lift up the discouraged. I pray that you would bring clarity to the confused. I pray that you would bring reconciliation to broken relationships. And I pray that you would give the gift of perseverance so that we run like these marathoners, the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the pioneer, perfecter of our faith, who because he had a joy set before him, despised the shame and endured the cross. We want to follow him on the Calvary Road. We want to go with him outside the city and bear abuse with him this week if by any means we might show the surpassing value of Christ in our lives over against everything else. So come and do these and a hundred other good things in these moments, I pray in Jesus' name. Two weeks ago, you may remember, I asked you if you wanted to be an oak tree Christian or a cattail Christian. Remember that? And last week, I don't know if you caught the parallel ideas in the text, but I said there are baby Christians and there are mature Christians. comes right out of verse 12 of chapter 5. Now, we all know, if we've been around a few weeks, or you would know it before we're done this morning, that the writer of the book of Hebrews has this passion in his bones to help people move from cattail to oak tree and from baby to mature. That's what this book is about. To get people on the road, keep them moving, not let them settle in or begin to drift backwards, but to make them zealous to lay hold on the confession of their faith. He's just bent with all of his efforts toward helping people not be steady state, coasting, lackadaisical, laid back, cavalier Christians. That's what this book is all about. Don't be that way. 
he is saying. And yet, last week we read, they have become dull of hearing. Remember that? The disease of dullness. And how do you heal it? It was last week's message. So, it may be that it comes like a bucket of uh, ice water in the face when he says in verse 3, this we will do, namely, pursue maturity, this we will do if God permits. I think those who were listening surely cried out, what's this if stuff? Well, you mean, if God permits my holiness, if God permits my sanctification, if God permits me to leave behind the basics and press on to maturity, what's this if stuff? I think that's what an alert reader would naturally say. I don't know whether they are so dull they couldn't see it and say it, but I sure saw it and said it. Mr. Writer to the Hebrews, what do you mean, if God permits, we will press on to maturity? And that's the question we have to ask this morning. What is this, if God permits? So let's take those words and clarify them one at a time. Let's start with the word this. This we will do if God permits. What? What will we do if God permits? Well, verse 1 says there are three things he wants them to do. Number one, leave elementary teachings about Christ. Number two, press on to maturity. Number three, Don't lay foundations again. This we will do if God permits. Now, there's a question here in what this uh, refers to, this leaving behind elementary things and pressing on and not laying a foundation The question that immediately rose in my mind, because last week's sermon was very fresh in my mind. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5 from last week. It says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Now, that doesn't seem like it fits with verse 1, because verse 1 says, leave the elementary things. Verse 12 seems to say, you need the elementary things to be taught to you all over again. And verse 1 says, stop laying those foundations and leave them behind and press on to something else. And so the first question I had to answer is, how in the world does verse 12 of chapter 5 fit together with verse 1 of chapter Six, because this author did not fall asleep in those three verses and wake up and write something totally contrary to what he said. He's, he's, he's a reasonable person and we're the ones who need to change here and figure out how to fit into his way of thinking. So here's my effort to get in there to his head and figure out what he means. 
Verse 12 of chapter 5 says you don't need to be taught or you do need to be taught. Excuse me. You do need to be taught about the basics. And verse 1 of chapter 6 says don't lay the foundation of the basics again or don't lay whatever foundation this is all over again here. Now, there's a difference evidently between teaching about the basics and laying this foundation that he's talking about in verse one, and here's my suggestion what the difference is. The teaching they need, this is just a recap from last Sunday, the teaching they need is how to use the basics in the exercise of their spiritual faculties so as to learn how to discern good and evil and thus grow into maturity. What they need is not more facts about the basics, but how to take facts and spiritually Pump iron with them and do something with them so that they get the muscle of faith or so that they get the heart that's renewed and can discern good and evil and grow practically, morally, spiritually into maturity. In other words, their problem is not uh, information deficiency here. It's a failure to take the milk and to digest it properly flex their faith muscles with it and discern good and evil and tackle the good and grow. That's that's the problem. And so what they need is somebody to show them how to do that again. Now, verse 1, on the other hand, I think, of chapter 6, isn't talking about that. It's saying, don't rebuild foundations. That is, don't go back and think that you need more facts. In fact, I think he says more than that. When you look at what the foundation is here, let me read them to you. There are three pairs in verse 1 and then in verse 2. And the first pair is repentance from dead works and faith in God, faith toward God. Second pair, instruction about washings and laying on of hands. Third pair, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, what strikes me about those and other interpreters is that they aren't distinctively Christian. They are practices and truths that Christianity held in common with Judaism, the Old Testament, and the practice of Judaism in those days. The, the Pharisees and the others, they knew all about washings. And they knew all about laying on of hands and they believed in the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and they talked about repentance and faith. There's nothing distinctively Christian here, which gives me a clue that maybe, and I think this is the case, these Christians, as they were being brought to Christ and being preached to, the evangelists used <clears throat> these Old Testament Jewish realities as uh, stepping stones or foundation pieces as they explained Christ to them, who Christ was and what he did. And they brought these things in from the Old Testament appropriately. is isn't a wrong thing to do. This is the right thing to do. And taught them <coughs> who Christ was on the basis of those things. And what seems to be happening is that not only are these readers beginning to flag in their zeal how to use milk, how to grow into maturity by flexing the muscles of faith that milk feeds, but they're also drifting back behind the milk even 
to these old foundational things and beginning to talk about them and wonder about them and maybe rebuild them. And he's saying, look, not only do you need, according to last week's message, to take the milk and use it properly and grow thereby, that's chapter 5, verse 12, but you got to watch out because you are about to drift behind milk into these foundational things and spend all of your time tinkering around with the foundation that you stood on to get to Christ. Don't do that. Come to Christ. Flex your muscles in Christ. Grow in Christ. I think that's the difference. I think that's how verse 12 of chapter 5 and verse 1 of chapter 6 fit together. Now, let me give you in a word picture what's going on in these people's experience. Look down to verses 7 and 8. We're jumping ahead to next week's message here, but that's okay because this word picture really helps me catch on to what this author is concerned about in these people's lives. In verses 7 and 8, he paints a picture of uh, rain and ground and vegetation and thorns. Let's read it. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it. Now stop there and let me interpret. The ground is the church and the rain is the blessing of God, especially the word of God, especially the milk of God that is coming into their lives week after week. The analogy right here in this room is for you churchgoers who regularly come, you are ground. And as you come to Bethlehem, there are truth hymns and truth prayers and truth meals and truth Sunday school classes and truth sermons. And you are being rained upon with milk and meat week after week. And here's the question. What's happening in your life? Let's keep reading. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation. This is maturity now. This is discerning good from evil with your inner spiritual uh, new mind from last week's verse 14. And brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, receives a blessing. That's salvation. That's the rest. Entering into God's rest. That's what this book wants you to get to. And you've got to have vegetation to get there. If you want a blessing from God in the end, you've got to be alive. And living things grow. Things that don't grow, die. I said last week that there may be three kinds of Christians, not two. There may be mature Christians, baby Christians, and doll Christians. That look like babies, but aren't alive. This second field we're about to read about is that. But if it yields thorns and thistles, sitting in church year after year, being rained on, if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up, not with a blessing, but being burned. Now, that's the situation this writer is facing. He's looking at these people. He's getting word back. Oh, what's going on in their lives and he says, I think they're spending all their time with their milk and they're not using it. They're not learning how to grow and, and be 
I'll create a word. Vegetative. They're not making any fruit come. In fact, I fear they're drifting further back than that into this foundational stuff of just repenting toward God and believing God the way they thought about it when they were in the Old Testament mode and washing of hands and and uh, laying on of hands and these other things. I just fear that they're getting all worked up about things and they're not doing what they're supposed to do, namely receive rain, be transformed, flex the muscle of faith in a life transformed, live a godly life, press on to the holiness without which we will not see the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 14. And I don't know for sure what's going to become of these folks. Though he... He is hopeful. Look at verse 9. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And I'll leave that because that's the sermon from two weeks out. But he, he wants and he does feel strong hope for this church. All right, I've just said that if you get rained on and you don't bear fruit, you're going to be burned up. But, hear me, I'm more hopeful than that for you. All right, that's the best I can do with question number one. How does the press on command of verse one relate to the you need basics still in verse 12? And in a nutshell, what they need is the someone to take them and help them learn how to live by faith on the basics. And in verse one, it's don't just stay with the milk and don't just drift behind the milk. Get on, get on. Like I said Last week. Now, here's the last question. What's this if thing? This we will do. We will get on. We will press on to maturity if the Lord permits. And what I want you to see here is a sovereign, great, holy, wise, all-controlling God in whom to rest is the sweetest experience in the universe. There are five implications of these three words. If God permits. Here's implication number one. God governs sovereignly the process of sanctification. Or, if that's too big a word, the process of maturity. Maturing. He governs it sovereignly. That is, he has the final say in whether you grow or die. He has the final say in whether we progress toward maturity. Now I want to show you this in two other texts in Hebrews, lest you think I'm pouring too much into these three words. So let's go to chapter 13. Verses 20 and 21, if you'd like to see for yourself in the writing of these two verses. What we're looking for is an interpretation of the sovereignty of God in my and your progress toward holiness. Verses 20 to 21 of Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom, and I would add, therefore, be glory forever and ever. How does what is pleasing to God come about in your life? It comes about when God equips you with everything good to do his will and works in you that which is pleasing in his sight. If he doesn't, you won't have it. If he does, you will have it. If God permits, you will live a life pleasing to him. If he doesn't permit, you won't live a life pleasing to him. God is the one who is at work in this thing. That's text number one. Here's number two. Turn back one chapter to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. This is the picture of Esau. It's one of the most frightening pictures. I dealt with several people after the first service who were terrified by this picture of Esau. And rightly so. And I'll be willing to stay as long as you want this afternoon to pray with you about this issue. But here's Esau, who did what some of you are doing probably right now. He squandered his birthright and his blessing for a bowl of cereal. And then he tried to come back. And he couldn't. Let's read it. Let there be no moral, this is verse 16, chapter 12. Let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. And I had a young woman in tears here, and she wondered, can I have it? And I hope you wonder. This is, this is strong. This ought to wake you up if you're drifting. This ought to cut every self Confidence and self-reliance out from under you to think, as I've heard many people say over the years, I'll just live the way I want to live and then I'll do the repentance thing at the end. No way can you be sure that you will be able to repent. You see, let me be very, very clear here. She asked me the exactly right question. She said, even if I repent... He won't receive me. I said, no. I didn't say it that loud. I said, no. Look carefully at the verse. He could find no place of repentance. If you can repent, you can be saved. But there is no guarantee that having sold your birthright for a bowl of cereal, you'll ever be able to repent again. And it lies solely in the hands of God, whether you can or not. If God permits, you will go on 
And if he doesn't, you will be an Esau. Now, before I give you, there are four more points, and they will be clarifying of this one. Before I give you the other four, take your worship folder. Would you? Sometimes, you know, we hear something stated as bluntly as I'm stating it here, and we say, yikes! Do they really believe that around here? And yet you sang it in every one of these songs and didn't bat an eye. I'll just show you. I'll only give you four places. There are more. On the front page, in Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, the refrain says, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Who gives that? God. And you ask him to because you know you can't trust him without that grace. You will not move one millimeter from here to where you ought to be without grace. The second one, just move up the page to the congregational join in singing. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee near to the heart of God. Because if you don't hold me near to the heart of God, I am out of here. What did you mean when you read that? That's what I meant. Hold me near the heart of God because I am prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Hold me. Because if you don't do that, I'm a goner. We sang that. Turn the page. Rock of ages. Cleft for me. Last line of the first verse. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. You do it, rock of ages. You do it, blood. You do it, God. I can't make me pure. I can't move one little teeny step towards purity. Make me pure. And then look at the last one. Last verse, middle line. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee. For grace. We sing that sort of stuff. I'm helpless. I am helpless. You tell me to press on to maturity. Me, sinner, helpless, bound. And I say, Thou commandest maturity. Give what thou wilt. Give what thou can. What is that? Command what thou wilt. And I will obey. St. Augustine's quote. Here's point number two. Implication of these three words. Permitting us to advance to maturity is all grace. And permitting us or not permitting us is a righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. By nature, everybody in this room right now is a rebel against God. Your heart is spring-loaded apart from grace To shoot God. Get Him out of your life so that you can live the way you want to live. And that's exactly what we all feel and would do apart from God's wooing, impelling, drawing, transforming grace. We are sinners. We are wicked. We are depraved to the core. We hate God. Except when God 
changes us. Therefore, you can never say, this text means God hindered my goodwill to pursue maturity. He hindered me. He never hindered you. He never hindered you. He just left you in your rebellion. If you have a good will to pursue maturity, God put it there. If you have the slightest inclination towards God this morning, God put it there. God's not standing back saying, okay, if you produce X amount of purity, I finish it off. If there is X amount of purity in you, any desire to press on with the Lord, God put it there. And therefore, we can never say, ah, okay, if God only permits and he's in charge, then we'll just see if I become mature. That is so wicked to take this text and twist it into that kind of passivity. Because it's clearly not what the text is teaching, nor what is implied in the sovereignty of God. Number three, God sometimes wills that something come to pass which he forbids to come to pass. God sometimes wills to come to pass, sovereignly decreeing it that it will come to pass, which he has commanded should not come to pass. Right here in our text, for example... He says that it is up to him whether he will permit maturity, and yet he commands maturity. Let us press on to maturity, and the possibility exists that God will decree that it not happen. Now, you say, hmm, sounds like a schizophrenic to me. That God wills to decree that something not be and then turn around and command that it be. It's double talk. It is not double talk. You take the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ as the central event of history, as the example where this is brought most clearly to bear on our lives. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not murder. God forbids the killing of innocent people. The cross of Jesus Christ is a sovereign decree from on high that his son be murdered. Therefore, God decrees what he forbids. And if you deny either of those truths, you have forsaken Scripture. Because both are crystal Clear in the Bible. I quoted the one, Exodus 20, 13. I'll quote the other, namely Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou dost anoint, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Now, what did Herod, Pontius Pilate, the soldiers, and the Jews do? 
Herod put a robe on him, mocked him. Pilate scourged him. The soldiers nailed him. And the crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And every one of those is sin. And they were ordained and decreed by God to come to pass. Else he could not have fulfilled the precious promise of Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. Therefore, if you're going to be a Christian, you must handle the truth that God forbids sometimes what he ordains to come to pass. And if you can handle the fact that the cross, this glorious, terrible, awesome sin, was ordained by a holy, pure, wise, all-controlling God for wise and holy purposes, and that he is just in willing it, then you can handle the fact that he might ordain for wise, holy, inscrutable purposes far beyond our ability to discern that some not progress to maturity. Number four. Nevertheless, it is our duty and our delight to press on to maturity. This whole book of Hebrews is written with a passion. Oh man, this, this writer, beneath this massive vision of the sovereignty of God over all things, including the progress of holiness, this writer has devoted his whole soul to helping people become mature. He has devoted all of his energies to saying, hold fast, take heed, hang on, press forward. We don't read any passivity here. We don't read anybody folding his arms and saying, well, if God is God and he rules over sanctification, then case sarah, sarah, there's nothing we can do to advance or impede our sanctification. And so I ain't going to write no letter. I'm not even going to pray. He doesn't do that. You know, he was. it may have been Paul who wrote this letter. I don't know. But his theology is identical to Paul's because Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good purpose. He doesn't say... Since God is the one who is at work in you to will and to do his good purpose, you can just lay down. That's worldly, carnal reasoning. It's not biblical reasoning. Biblical reasoning says, since God is the one who is at work in me to will and to do his good purposes, that's the reason I can work. And the trembling comes knowing it's the only reason I can work. God's sovereignty over sanctification does not remove our obligation. It enables it. And it's the only enablement of it. If he does not work within me that which is pleasing in his sight, to use the writer of Hebrews language, I am undone. 
I know my rebellion. I hate God. And you do too. And if you don't think you do, you've never gotten to the root of your problem. And no wonder we are healed lightly. The only reason we move towards God is an incredible work of free mercy. Lastly, number five, and we're done. This, brothers and sisters, this sovereign God, this sovereign disposal of all things is a sweet and wonderful place to rest. This writer is not resting here. He's bending every effort, persevere in faith, hold fast to your confession, fight the evil heart of unbelief, pursue the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. And he's hopeful. He's hopeful in verse 9. I am hopeful that better things will happen to you than happened to that land that bore no vegetation. Yes, I'm hopeful. And I look out on Bethlehem and I say, God, I'll give my life to this place. I will preach. I will disciple. I will lead. I will structure. I will organize. I will write. I will pray. I will do everything I can with every ounce of energy within me as many years as you call me and give me life. And I am hopeful. I look out at a church like this and I am hopeful. I go down to Atlanta and Charleston like I did the last two days and people ask me about Bethlehem. I said, it is the greatest place in the world to serve. There is such a wonderful camaraderie on the staff. Even when we disagree a little bit about worship styles, there's a hanging in there and a love of what God is all about. But you know what? I don't rest on that. I rest on... If God permits. God rules this church. I don't rule it. You don't rule it. Good times for 13 years are no promise of good times for the next three. And bad times for three is no condemnation that good times won't come for the next 20. I love Joab. I'll close with this illustration. I love Joab. I, I, I don't like Joab. I love Joab. Remember Joab? He's a rascal. And he had a brother named Abishai. And he had high moments. David was a rascal too. And he was a man after God's own heart. Killed, adultery, a man after God's own heart. Joab is like David. He's a right-hand man. Joab, at one of his highest moments, he was surrounded by the Amalekites and the Syrians. And he has a brother named Abishai. Like I got brothers on the staff. I feel this way about them. And they were surrounded and they were about to attack. And they planned a strategy. They weren't passive. They planned a strategy. And just before the battle begins, he rides up to Abishai and he says, Abishai, you take men and move on the Syrians. I will take men and move on the Amalekites. And if they're too strong for me, come help me. And if they're too strong for you, I'll come help you. And then he paused. Maybe he raised his hand and he said, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. I look out on this congregation. I look at my staff. I look at these incredible people who pour their lives out in ministry here. These elders, deacons. I feel like 
the Amalekites and the Syrians are going to be defeated. But when I go to bed at night, I don't say, I got a, I got a David Livingston. I got a David Michael. I got a Tom Stiller. I got a Brad Nelson. I got an Irv. I got a Sally. I got a Chuck. That's not what I say. I say, may the Lord do what seems good to him. And if he permits, we'll exist in 10 years and we'll grow and we'll win people to Christ and we'll send missionaries. And I invite you this morning to rest with me there. It's sweet. It's a sweet place. Let's rest. Father, thank you so much for your sovereign love and grace and goodness to us. We would be undone without it. We would be wandering away from you. We would be in rebellion still. We'd have no love for the Bible, no love for the church, no love for the lost, no love for heaven if there weren't a transforming power at work in our lives. And I thank you with all my heart for saving me. And I ask that you would save in this room right now and that you would strengthen your people and that you would permit, indeed, that you would work maturity with all your might. In Jesus' name, amen.